Well, good morning, Plum Creek. It's great to see all of you here today. I want to welcome everybody, both in person as well as all of you watching online. I hope you've had a good week. I hope your tournament bracket is not as busted as mine is. Uh, but whatever your week's been like, I'm glad you decided to join us. I'm seeing some people here today that I haven't seen in a long time. And if you happen to be a guest with us today, uh, you picked a great time to be here. We're in the middle of a series called Love First. And in this series, we're looking at different people who had an encounter with Jesus. And in each one of these encounters, Jesus loved first. That's where he started. And it didn't matter who it was. Jesus met notorious sinners, and he also met proud religious leaders. He met the down and out and the rich and powerful and even enemies who were out to get him. And it's an amazing thing. In every encounter that Jesus had with people, he approached each one of them with love. They didn't always accept it, but he always offered it. And I'm really excited about today's encounter. The title of this sermon is People with a Messy Past. And this sermon is very important because a lot of us walk around with regrets about some of the things we've done. We can remember bad decisions that we've made, either a long time ago or here recently. And if that's you, if your past is a little messy, you may be reluctant to turn to Jesus. You may feel like that he's going to reject you or condemn you, but that's not who Jesus is. Scripture tells us that Jesus did not come into this world to condemn the world. He came to bring grace and truth. That's what we see in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. In that verse, the Apostle John writes, The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh. He made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I want to focus on those last few words. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And that word grace refers to God's love and forgiveness that He offers to us. It's a gift that we totally do not deserve. But then Jesus is also full of truth. He will tell you what you need to hear. Whenever you get on course, get off course, he will straighten you out. And this is one of the things that is great about Jesus. He is both completely loving and completely truthful. And when you run to him, he loves first, but he also leads you to the truth. And I can think of several stories in the Bible where Jesus shows both grace and truth. But there's one in particular that immediately pops into my head. It's the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. And there's a good chance you've heard this story. It starts with this woman who is caught in the act of adultery. And the religious leaders drag her in front of Jesus. And they say, the law tells us that we should stone this woman for her sin. But what do you say? And then some of you may remember his answer. Uh, it's, it's a verse that people just love to quote. Jesus said, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. 
And of course, at that point, the religious leaders walked away, and then Jesus turned to the woman, and he makes another famous statement. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. So there it is, right? It's both grace and truth. This woman deserved judgment, but she got forgiveness. And she also got truth, right? Jesus told her, you need to stop living this way. Go and leave your life of sin behind. So like I said, this this story is the perfect example of what we're talking about today. And I want to go to the text and look at it more closely. But before we do that, I need to deal with a problem. This story is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And in my nine years of being here at Plum Creek, I've hardly ever mentioned this passage. And if it's such a great story, why would I avoid it? Well, uh, I want to be up front with you. If you open your Bible and you go to the beginning of John chapter 8, there's a good chance that you'll see this passage set apart in italics along with this note that says something like this. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 through 8.11. And before we go any further, I believe I need to address this issue. What is the deal here? Should this story be in the Bible or not? Well, when you look at the conservative scholars, the ones who do believe that the Bible is truly the Word of God, The vast majority of them agree. They believe this passage did not originally appear in the book of John. Most probably, these words were not written by John the Apostle. And the evidence for this is pretty strong. Uh, We don't find this passage in any of the ancient manuscripts until the 5th century. So like 400 years after Jesus. However, that's no guarantee that this story didn't happen. In fact, it's possible that certain leaders in the church wanted to suppress this story. In the first few centuries after the Bible was written, uh, many of the church fathers took a very harsh stance against sexual sin. Adultery was listed right alongside murder and apostasy. Apostasy is denying your faith. So uh, because of that, Some of the church leaders may have been disturbed by this story because Jesus doesn't condemn the woman when he has the chance. Then I also heard an interesting theory from St. Augustine. Augustine is a well-known bishop. He lived around the year 400, and he thought maybe this story was removed by suspicious husbands because it might give their wives an excuse to go have an affair and think they could get away with it. I don't know about that. But at the end of the day, did this story really happen? My honest answer is, I don't know. But here's what I do know. The point of this story is absolutely true. Because this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is full of both grace and truth. When you come to Jesus, you will find grace and forgiveness. But Jesus will also lead you away from sin. He'll lead you to the truth. So we are going to read this passage today, and we'll hold the story itself loosely. But we can apply this story in our lives with complete confidence. So let's go to the text. Read along with me, starting with John chapter 7, verse 53. 
Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So there are several things we need to notice here. Uh, First, the whole situation is a setup. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are just using this woman because they want to put Jesus in a no-win situation. And they take this scandal into the public square because they want to draw a crowd. See, people back then were very similar to people today. If you want to get the attention of a large crowd, a sex scandal works pretty much like magic. So this was a strategic move by the Pharisees. They are forcing Jesus into making a public decision. And whatever he says, it's going to be controversial either way. Uh, On the one hand, Jesus could say, of course, let's do exactly what the law says. Stone the woman. But on the other hand, if Jesus excuses her, he could be accused of contradicting the law. And that that accusation would be justified. So Jesus is in a tough spot. But the religious leaders are also in a tough spot, and they don't even realize it. They are guilty of flagrant and obvious hypocrisy. Think about it. If the woman was caught in the act of adultery, there had to be a man involved. It takes two, right? So where is the guy? We should find it very disturbing that the Pharisees did not bring the man before Jesus. Because they're more than happy to shame this woman publicly. But they let the man get away clean. So these religious leaders, they may look respectable on the outside. But on the inside, they are completely corrupt. And Jesus is about to confront them. But he does it in a, in a very curious way. Let's keep reading. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, when we read this part, most of us have the same question, right? What did Jesus write on the ground? It's one of those great mysteries, and really, we have no idea. I've heard lots of suggestions. Some people think, He wrote down a verse from the Old Testament, something that applied to the situation. Others have said, well, maybe some of these Pharisees had affairs of their own, and it could be that Jesus wrote down the names of their girlfriends. I don't know. In the end, we don't have an answer, but we can still picture the drama of this moment. This big crowd, they're waiting for Jesus to say something, but he's just doodling in the dirt over there. Finally, though, he stands up and he gives this completely unexpected response. He says, fine, if any one of you is without sin, go ahead, throw the stone. And with that statement, 
Jesus is not saying that all accusers have to be perfectly sinless, because if that was the case, no one could ever accuse anyone of anything. But here's what Jesus is doing. He's exposing the Pharisees as a bunch of hypocrites. They're a bunch of pretenders. They pretended to care about the law, but that's not what they cared about. They just wanted to stop Jesus and shut down his ministry. But he could see right into their hearts. And at that point, it's game over. The Pharisees had to get out of there before Jesus revealed some other things, like maybe some of their secret sins. Verse 9, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And this is the moment of truth. This woman is about to find out what Jesus really thinks of her. And she has to be bracing herself, right? Because she is a woman with a messy past. Now, it is true that the Pharisees had treated her very unfairly. They had used her. They, they shamed her. They put her on trial while the man just goes free. It was all outrageous and inexcusable. But the fact is... The woman was guilty of sin, right? So what is Jesus going to do? But well, we know what he does. Jesus loves first. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This response is very moving to me. Jesus treats this woman with gentleness and respect. And then, in an act of scandalous grace, he shows her forgiveness. Neither do I condemn you. And we should remember, this is not the only time that Jesus shows this kind of grace. Just a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at a story where a sinful woman wept at the feet of Jesus. This sinful woman wet his feet with her tears. She poured perfume over them. And what did Jesus say about that woman? He said, her many sins are forgiven. So it's like I said, this story in John chapter 8, it lines up perfectly with the character of Jesus. He's full of grace. He, he offers forgiveness freely. But we can't ignore that last sentence. Go now and leave your life of sin. And there's the truth, right? Grace comes with an expectation. Jesus takes sin very seriously. And he tells the woman to leave her sin behind. And now it's time to see how we can apply this story in our lives. And just like Jesus, just like Jesus did, we'll start with love. Two weeks ago, uh, Troy kicked off this series and and I want to go back to a powerful story that he shared. Troy talked about a young man who tried very hard to please his father. But that wasn't easy because his dad was a perfectionist. And no matter what the young man did, it wasn't enough. And the boy said, one day I'm going to get it right. I'm going to please my dad. And he will say, son, I'm proud of you. And he'll give me a big hug. And then uh, Troy said that many of us picture God like 
some dad who stands at a distance, kind of stiff-arming you. He, he said, we imagine God saying, sure, I will accept you and embrace you. I'll give you a big hug, but not yet, because you've got some issues. You've got some stuff in your life. So first, you clean up that stuff, and at that point, that's when you get the hug. But that's not how God works. If you heard the sermon from last Sunday, you might remember that I read Romans 5, 8. That verse says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you ask me, that's one of the best things you could ever hear. God loves first. While we were still sinners, while we were still a mess, Christ died for us. And Jesus offers this gift to absolutely everyone. He offers forgiveness and salvation and a restored relationship with God. And when you accept that gift and you give your life to him, you're in the hug. And that's grace, right? This is the good news of God's grace. Forgiveness is available to all who have sinned. And that includes sexual sins. And I wanted to specifically mention sexual sin for a couple of reasons. Number one, that's the category of sin that shows up in the story we read today. But number two, over the years, there has often been a particular shame attached to sexual sin. The church has often fixated on sexual sins and given a pass to other sins. For, for example, how many times have you seen a church come down hard on a person who is divisive? Someone who, who causes division in the church? Because, you know, Scripture has clear instructions for how to handle a person like that. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time, and after that, have nothing to do with them. So the church should be consistent right? All sin is offensive to God. Jesus takes all sin seriously, and the church needs to follow his example. The church also needs to follow his example of loving first. Whenever someone turns away from their sin and they surrender to Jesus, forgiveness is available. That forgiveness is available from God himself, and it should also be available from the church. No matter who you are, no matter what mess is in your past. So that's the good news. That is grace. But we can't skip over the truth part of the equation. We have to listen when Jesus says, go and sin no more. That's another thing that Troy talked about two weeks ago. He said, don't misunderstand me. When you are inside the hug, God will work on your stuff. In other words, uh, you, you can come as you are, but he won't leave you where you are. He loves you too much to let you wallow in your sin and pretend like it's okay. Jesus is full of grace, and he's also full of truth. When you give your life to Jesus, it is essential to live in God's truth. It is essential to turn away from sin over and over, day after day. Now, in this lifetime, we will never overcome sin completely. But over time, through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
we can grow to become more like Jesus. And that growth needs to happen in every area of our lives, including our sexuality. You know, I mentioned that the church has sometimes fixated on sexual sin and given a pass to other sins, and that's not okay. But we should be careful not to let the pendulum swing too far to the other extreme, where we just gloss over sexual sin or look the other way. That's especially important in this day and age, because in our world right now, the moral standards are constantly changing. Our culture is in this mode of trading clarity for confusion. I'm not just talking about sex here. This is happening across the board. Uh, You can see it right now in the field of mathematics. Have you heard about this? There is a group that wants to make math more subjective. Objectivity is out of style. For example, certain people have started to question the value of the equal sign. Here's a quote from an article in Wired magazine. The guy who wrote this article said, The equal sign seems to make an entirely fundamental and uncontroversial statement. These things are exactly the same. One plus one equals two. But there is a growing community of mathematicians who regard the equal sign as math's original error. They see it as a veneer that hides important complexities in the way quantities are related They want to reformulate mathematics in the looser language of equivalence. Now, I am no mathematician, but here's how this sounds to me. It sounds like it is overly simplistic to say that 1 plus 1 equals 2 because things are actually more complicated than that. All right, you you can say what you want about this. But I bring it up as an example of this wider trend to move from clarity to confusion. And there is no question that our culture is bringing confusion when it comes to sexual standards. And because of that, there's a need for us to revisit the truth of Scripture. God's Word is actually very clear when it comes to sex. But as the culture keeps changing around us, some people might wonder, Do we still believe what we believed a few years ago? And I need to tell you that here at Plum Creek, we are committed to stand on the truth of God's word. So let's take a look at what the Bible says. In Matthew chapter 19, a group of Pharisees came to Jesus because they had a question about divorce. And Jesus basically said, why don't we first step back and look at the original pattern of marriage? And here's what Jesus said. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, when Jesus asked the Pharisees if they had read this, they certainly had, because Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And those Pharisees would have memorized that book when they were younger. They knew those words very well. And Jesus is doing something amazing here. First, he confirms what Scripture teaches in the Old Testament. God designed humanity with two distinct genders, male and female. 
And God also established marriage as a unique relationship among humans. It, it stands apart from every other relationship that we have in life. And so here we see the kind of marriage that Jesus endorses. One man married to one woman in a lifelong exclusive commitment to each other. And Jesus also affirms that this is the context where a sexual relationship should take place. That's where he says the man is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. That's sex. And that's pretty straightforward, right? But to make sure we're clear on this, I want to use an illustration that I've used in the past. I heard this illustration a long time ago, and I believe it's very helpful. We start with a box. And this box is a boundary. Everything inside of the box is a place of safety and security and love. But the area outside the box is not safe or secure. Outside the box is a place where you are bound to get hurt. Now, if I go to someone I care about and I tell them to stay inside the box, am I being restrictive? Well, yes, I am. <laughs> But the motivation is not to be controlling or manipulative. No, of course not. The motivation is love. It's like me telling my kids to get out of the street when a car is coming. I want them to go from a place of danger to a place of safety. And why? It's because I love them. And you can probably see the connection I'm making, right? This box represents God's idea of marriage. One man one woman committed to each other in a covenant relationship for life. Yes, that box is a boundary. But God has designed life in such a way that we can find safety and security and love inside that box. Now, I will admit, if one or both parties are not doing marriage God's way, life inside that box can be difficult. It can get very rough. But if we do follow God's design... Here's what it looks like. A husband and a wife willingly choose to give up their freedom for a higher purpose. They both say, I have chosen you for better or for worse. Even if you get on my nerves. Even if you get old and flabby. Even if I don't always feel those warm and fuzzy feelings that I felt in the beginning. Now, it doesn't matter. You don't have to... Keep performing to win my love. You've got it. It's yours. I'm committed to you for life. That's what God's version of marriage looks like. A husband and a wife are both committed to that covenant. And, and when that happens, this box is not confining. Not at all. There is safety and security inside that boundary. There is intimacy and trust there is a greater love than you can find in any other human relationship. That is the good gift that marriage was intended to be. And God says, this covenant is so special and so unique, you need to keep sexual activity inside the box. Now, of course, the culture around us does not agree with this idea at all. They would say, oh, come on. Could you be any more outdated? We don't need that box anymore. We can find love wherever and however we want. As long as it's between consenting adults, it is fine. 
But for followers of Jesus, this is where the rubber meets the road. Are we going to be transformed by the truth of God's word? Or will we try to shape Scripture to fit our own ideas and our own desires? If we're willing to listen to God's truth, we'll pay attention to a verse like Ephesians 5, verse 3, where the Apostle Paul says, But among you, among Christians, the church, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So, not even a hint of sexual immorality. What qualifies as sexual immorality? Well, that phrase is translated from the Greek word pornea. That sound familiar? Pornea. (laughs) That word refers to all sexual activity outside of marriage, anything outside the box. And in Mark chapter 7, Jesus also uses that word, pornea, and he calls it sin as well. Now, today, as we all know, there are many very common behaviors that fall outside of that box. And let's be honest here. The vast majority of us have all been tempted to take part in some activity that's outside that box. Pornography is a perfect example. You know, in our day and age, when we have so many devices that connect to the Internet, pornography is the other pandemic. It's the pandemic that you don't hear about in the news every day. And, you know, pornography, it's so pervasive, so anonymous, so addictive, you better believe that we have people listening right now who would say this is their toughest spiritual battleground. And if this is your struggle right now, I want you to know that help is available. You're welcome to speak with any of us here at church, but this week I also found a Christian website with some great resources. It's called puredesire.org. And this site is very helpful, whether you're the one struggling with pornography or you're a spouse of someone who's struggling or you're a parent who just wants to protect your kids. Uh, This website has recommendations for accountability software. They have action plans for addicts and spouses. Uh, They offer counseling online. They have lots of other tools as well. I highly recommend that you check it out. But the bottom line is, the culture around us has decided that freedom is found outside the box instead of inside. But it's not true. When you blur that boundary or you completely remove it, there's a price to pay. A few years ago, I saw an article. It was very interesting. The title said, Is it time to change our views of adultery and marriage? The the author of that article said, Is it realistic to think that we could really be with just one person for life? She thinks that idea is naive and archaic and boring. She wasn't condoning adultery, really, because adultery involves lying, and she still thinks that lying is wrong. So her solution was just be open, just be honest with each other, and agree to have extramarital affairs. For her, 
that idea sounds like freedom. But where does that leave you? In that kind of relationship, you're constantly saying, I can't count on this other person, my spouse, to be here for me. Because I'm constantly on trial. I'm, I'm constantly trying to convince my spouse that I am worth staying with. Now, where's the security in that? It's not there. That's not in the safe zone that God established. And when you cross that boundary, there are all kinds of consequences that our culture simply doesn't want to think about. Sin always comes with serious consequences. I heard a great description of sin from a preacher named Craig Grishel. He said, sin promises satisfaction, but at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. It might sound strange to hear me say this in church, but in the early stages, sin is actually fun. That's why it's tempting. Sin promises satisfaction, and it gives you just a taste of that satisfaction in the beginning. In the long run, though, sin will leave you empty and broken and full of pain. And if you never surrender that sin to Jesus and find forgiveness through him, sin eventually leads to death, eternal death. And you know what? God doesn't want you or anyone else to experience that pain. God doesn't want anyone to experience that death. And when you really think about it, God's truth is just another expression of God's love. So as followers of Jesus, as the church, this is the example for us to follow. We need to be full of grace and full of truth. Because that's who Jesus is. We need both grace and truth because guess what? We all have a messy past. All of us can say, yes, I'm not above anyone else. I also have a mess in my past. And this is why we are so, so thankful for the good news of the gospel. We can run to Jesus. And no matter what, he will love first he will also speak the truth. It's what he does. Jesus loves first, fully and completely, and he also speaks truth fully and completely. So let's accept his love and his truth, and then let's extend that love and truth to others. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world of confusion. The standards of right and wrong in our culture change literally every day. But Lord, I thank you that you speak truth. And I thank you that even when we're broken, even when we have a mess in our past, you love us first. You're willing to accept us, to, to put us in the hug. And I thank you so much for that. Lord, I pray that we will live lives that help others to know of your love and your truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.